which is what this is all about. Aren't we all beginning the process of healing at one level or another? I mean, every one of us has unfinished business. Every one of us has things that we're still working on. And so to be able to find that healing, and that's exactly what we're talking about. In this red letter study that we're, we've been doing here, this is uh, Sunday 6 of the red letter study. But when Jesus is talking about kingdom, that's exactly what he's talking about. He's talking about a place of healing. He's talking about a place of fullness and a place of completeness. And us trying to get to that place is what his way is all about. Getting to the place of con- connection and healing and fullness. <laughs> I was just thinking, there go all the kids up to stairs and there goes Bill with them. <laughs> I love that. Last week we talked about um, John 3.16. We talked about it being probably the most famous verse, verse in the Bible, at least from evangelical circles. And the reason for that is, is that it is the encapsulation of the whole entire gospel. If you think about what is in that verse, and we did think about what that was, was in that verse, that it's the gospel in microcosm, but also that the understanding of that gospel, the understanding of that verse is very different, very different when you look at it through an Aramaic lens. It's this picture of kingdom that Jesus is constantly trying to get across to us. And more and more, I hope that you'll see in the red letter study that we're doing that what Jesus is doing is one thing and one thing only. Over and over, he's trying to get across this concept of kingdom. What is kingdom and how do you get there? Because that's the whole nut of Jesus' teaching, life and ministry, was being able to live in that space right here and right now, that quality of life that quality of connection. And he uses metaphor after metaphor. He piles them up in parables and stories and everything that he can think of. You know, it's like throwing everything at the wall to see what sticks, trying to get us to understand this concept. And so he's going to use these metaphors like being born again, being born of spirit. That yes, you're born of water, but you're going to need to be born of spirit. To be born again and is the only way that you're going to be able to see kingdom. And so being born again or born of spirit is the same as seeing kingdom. But to see kingdom in a, from a Hebrew point of view means to really taste kingdom. Taste and see that the Lord is good from Psalm 34. Two ideas that mean the same thing. It means to experience. It means to perceive. It means to have intimate knowledge of. To know truth, again, is to have intimate experience and knowledge of that which liberates us and sets us free. Over and over again, he's talking about these things. You know? And to realize that the experience of kingdom comes from within. It's not going to be out there someplace. It's within. And that we're going to be changed by this experience. Jesus is just doing everything that he can to try to get us to understand this. And then in John 3.16, we talked about that first phrase, God so loved the world, but that so there, hakanah in in Aramaic, doesn't mean how much, it just means how. What was the quality of God's love? God loved such that, because you can't talk about God's love in terms of degree. It has no degree. It's perfect. It's infinite. And everything that can't be measured always looks the same. God's love always looks the same, no matter who it's falling on. And this is the part that really bakes our noodle because this is not just, right? 
someone can do all the things wrong and gets the same amount of love that I get when I was doing everything right. That just doesn't seem right. But that's the good news. The good news is that God's love has no degree. God loved us so that he gave not just an only begotten son as an only child, but a son that was so singular and so solitary that he was completely integrated from inside out. He was the son of unity, the son of God's unity and oneness and love in human form. God loved the world. God loved all of us so that he gave this child of his own unity to be with us here in human form, that anyone who believes, not mentally, not just mental agreement here, but actually has trust and conviction and firmness that can only be proven in action. How do you know that you really trust something? Only when you risk in action that thing and see if it comes back to you as trustworthy. So when we trust in this child of unity enough to actually follow after, to risk the things that need to be risked, which is everything we think we know, in order to follow after, then we will have eternal life. But Hayyad Alma doesn't mean eternal life in terms of a whole bunch of life after we die, forever and for always. It means life that is eternally new and alive and abundant right here and right now. Everything changes when we take these concepts, these phrases that we think we understand in English and put them back into the original Aramaic. Those idiomatic phrases and the worldview of those who actually were hearing it for the first time. And we see where Jesus is going with this. There's nothing passive about John 3.16. We don't just mentally agree and everything is done for us. It is we who partner with God in this way and risk the things that are most dear to us and the things we think are our very survival in order to be able to experience something we can't experience any other way except from the center of our vulnerability, the center of our uncertainty, with the trust of a child and with the submission of the bondservant or the slave, which is what Talia means when Jesus is talking about the kingdom are such as these children. That's what he's trying to get across to us. The trust without understanding, the trust in the midst of uncertainty that propels us into the submission without which we cannot see what Jesus is trying to show us. These kingdom clues are all piling up. Even just in the few Sundays that we've been looking at the red letters, at Jesus' actual words, this concept of kingdom is central. This way to kingdom is everything that he's trying to teach us. To be born again, to see and taste. He used the wind. can't see where it's coming from. You can't see where it's going to you, but you can see the effect of it. And that's so interesting because Jesus isn't about chasing the cause of things, right? To try to understand the cause. He's chasing the effect, which is why we name this place such. Kind of a shameless plug there, right? I just kind of backed into that one. But that was exactly it. We're not chasing the cause. We don't need to understand who God is. We need to trust that God is love. Yeah, degreeless love. Otherwise, how are we going to do this? Not chasing the cause, but chasing the effect. Because in terms of the spirit, that's all we're ever going to see here. Just like the wind. We're going to see the effect of it. We're going to hear the sound of it. It's going to blow through our lives and we'll see the difference. But we're not going to know where it's coming or going to. That's the uncertain. That's the mystery part. 
That's the paradox. And if we can't become comfortable living in paradox, we will never be comfortable living with Jesus. Can't do it. That's what he's all about. And so this morning, he's going to give us two more metaphors. He's going to talk about living water, and he's going to be talking about worshiping in spirit and truth. And all this has to do with the Samaritan woman at the well that he meets along the way. Let's uh, read John 4, starting at verse 3, and just get a, a sense of where this is taking us. So Jesus left Judea and went away again into Galilee, and he had to pass through Samaria. So he came to a city of Samaria called Sychar, near the parcel of ground that Jacob gave to his son Joseph, and Jacob's well was there. So Jesus, being wearied from his journey, was sitting thus by the well. It was about the sixth hour. There came a woman with Samaria to draw water, and Jesus said to her, Give me a drink. For his disciples had gone away into the city to buy food. Therefore the Samaritan woman said to him, How is it that you, being a Jew, ask me for a drink, since I am a Samaritan woman? For Jews have no dealings with Samaritans. Jesus answered and said to her, If you knew the gift of God, and who it is who says to you, Give me a drink, you would have asked him, and he would have given you living water. And she said to him, Sir, you have nothing to draw with, and the well is deep. Where then do you get that living water? You are not greater than our father Jacob, are you, who gave us the well and drank of it himself and his sons and his cattle? All right. And we read that story, it just kind of rolls off the tongue, right? And you accept what you're reading line by line. But let's break it down and see the significance of what's going on here. First of all, the line, Jesus had to pass through Samaria. Did he have to pass through Samaria? Actually... No upstanding Jew had to pass through Samaria or would pass through Samaria. They would do everything that they could to avoid Samaria. They would double their journey in order to avoid Samaria. Jesus didn't have to pass through Samaria. He chose to pass through Samaria. So here's a little geography lesson. And, you know, Mary keeps telling me I need to have some visuals up here. And a map would be nice. But if you can imagine the eastern Mediterranean coastline, right, where Israel is, And so between the Mediterranean Sea and the Jordan Rift River Valley that runs from the Sea of Galilee in the north down to the Dead Sea in the south, between those two bodies of water, Jordan River and the the Mediterranean Sea, it's only like 70 miles to 100 miles, you know, at, at the point. We're talking about a whole parcel of land that's no bigger than the state of New Jersey. It's a tiny little place. Everything is compressed. Everything is close by, relatively speaking. Unless you're walking, then, of course, if things kind of balloon out. But here's this little narrow piece of land. Now, in the first century, when Jesus was walking around, at the very south was Judea, the province of Judea. And then right north of that, and remember, this is bounded by these bodies of water, right? To the north of that is Samaria, and to north of that is Galilee. So Galilee is right across where the Sea of Galilee is, and Judea is right across where the Dead Sea is, and in between the two is Samaria. Now, it was only about maybe 70 to 80 miles, depending on where you're starting in Judea, but say from Jerusalem to Capernaum, where Jesus lived, was about 75 miles. So for us, think about it. If we're going to walk 75 miles, it's about walking from here to Burbank 
on the other side of Los Angeles. It's about 62 miles to L.A. from from here and another 10 miles or so to get to Burbank. So it would be like you walking from here to Burbank. How long do you think that would take you at a walking pace? And you can't walk at night because there are no street lights in the first century. It's dark, right? It would be about two and a half to three days it would take you to walk that distance. That's going straight up as the crow flies. But here's Samaria right in the middle. The Jews hated the Samaritans. Did you find a map? Look at, look at, he's so good. Ah, thank you, sir. So here's what the Jews would do. Instead of going straight up, going 70 miles or so to Galilee, they would cross the Jordan and take the road that goes through Perea, which would be on the east side of the Jordan River, and then come back up past Samaria and recross the Jordan into Galilee, adding about 60 miles to their trip in order to make that dogleg, that, that side chain, just to avoid going through Samaria. So a 70-mile journey becomes, what, 130 miles? But they would do that regularly so that they didn't have to pass through Samaria. The scripture just tells us Jesus had to pass through. Yeah, he did because he chose to. Now, what is the deal with the Samaritans? Why do they hate the Samaritans so much? See? Jerry wants to know. <laughs> the ancient powers, um, when they, like Syria and Babylon, Greece, Rome, when they built their empires and they conquered a certain piece of land, one of their main concerns was, are they going to revolt and uprise and, and create a revolution and try to take back their land? And we would have to expend more resources, send armies, and, and try to manage this vast empire that we have. How do we manage that? How can we tamp down the effects of the uprisings that would happen from these very resentful people who are now occupied by us? And every one of these powers had different ways of doing it. The eastern powers typically would force march huge... Um, you know, maybe half the population of a given area that they conquered, take them and force march them into another area of their of their empire, and then take another population and force march it back into their area. So when you do that and you mix these foreign populations, they don't know each other, you're going to dispirit the people. They have no way to, uh, to organize, really. They have no center, no sense of national pride or nationality anymore. And eventually they're going to start intermarrying. And then they're going to create a mixed race, which doesn't have any allegiance to the nation that was conquered in the first place. So that was their strategy. The Greeks had a different kind of strategy. The Romans had a different kind of strategy. But the Assyrians and the Babylonians who conquered the northern and southern kingdoms of Israel, that was their strategy. So in seven, what was it, 721 BCE, when the Assyrians came in and conquered the northern kingdom of Israel, because David unified all the tribes in 1000 BCE, but, and his son, Solomon, also presided over this unified kingdom. But right after Solomon died, it fractured into two kingdoms, north and south. So Judea, or Judah, was the southern kingdom, and the northern kingdom was called Israel, and it comprised both the area that is Samaria and Galilee by Jesus' day, all of those together. So in 721, the Assyrians roll in, and they conquer the northern kingdom, and then they force march the people out into other areas of the kingdom, and they force march other people in. Those two, Gentiles and Jews, intermarried and mixed and became the Samaritan race. You can see the problem already? They're already half-breeds. They're already diluted in terms of their blood. 
Then, as the, the two populations, Judah and, and the conquered kingdom in the north, separated more and more, they developed different styles and different understandings of their worship and their scripture. So the Samaritans did not recognize the authority of the prophets, and so they only held to the first five books of, the, of what is now our Old Testament, their Bible at the time. So the Torah, those are the only books that they recognized. And then they built their own temple on Mount Gerasim, and that was their place of worship. Now, all that's going to be an issue in the next passage that we're going to read here. So they recognized different authorities, different scriptures. They worshipped at different places. And, of course, the Jews in the south who worshipped at the temple in in uh, Jerusalem, they thought that they were heretics and they were anathema and they were half-breeds and you didn't associate with them. They were ritually unclean and you stayed away from them completely as much as you could, which is why Jesus keeps using them, right, as teaching tools because they hated the Samaritans as much as blacks were hated in the South in the 50s, let's say. That was the kind of hatred. That was the kind of segregation that was going on, the ostracizing of them, ostracizing of them. So, All of this is the background for what's going on here. Jesus, as a good Jew, should have crossed the Jordan, gone through Perea and up to avoid Samaria. He goes straight through it. And he comes to a place of Jacob's well at a little village called Sychar. No one really knows where Sychar is, but there is a tell, which is a mound, an archaeological dig. We know where the well is. The well is still there, this, this well. In, in antiquity, it was thought to be the deepest well in the region. Uh, it's, it's been silted up since then, and there's actually no water in it right now. But we know that where we think Sakar was was about a half a mile north of this well. And it's right in the ci- near the city of Nablus, which is in the West Bank area of Palestine uh, in, in modern-day Israel. So we kind of know where these things are because they're anchored by Joseph's well. And Joseph's well was this land that was given... To, jo- to Jacob first, Jacob dug the well, and then it was given to Joseph and to his sons Ephraim and Manasseh, and they managed that area as part of their tribal lands. And so this is what we're talking about here. But this well is, or I should say the, the village where this woman lived in Sikar was still a half a mile from the well. You guys got to think about this. You're carrying a big pitcher that's supposed to be your water for the day, and you got to lug that thing a half a mile Empty is one thing, but then filled with water to take it back, that's a chore, right? And it's about the sixth hour. Now, we've talked about Hebrew timekeeping before. Their day starts at sunset and goes to sunrise the next day. So they start counting the daylight hours, the 12 hours of the day, at sunrise. So the sixth hour is about noon, okay? So at noontime, it's hot, Noon time is your meal time. Noon time is your siesta and rest time, right? All that happens in that noon, that three hours from noon to three. And then this day gets started again after three, which should, you know, be the ninth hour, right? So in that period, she, she comes to draw water. Jesus happens to be there and they meet. But that's not the usual time to draw water. Why would you draw water at the hottest time of the day? Well, you didn't. You drew water either in the late afternoon or the early evening or first thing in the morning when it was still cool. The well would have been deserted at noontime, kind of out in the middle of nowhere, right, outside of the village itself. Why is the woman drawing water at the worst possible time? 
Well, you're going to hear that she probably was not held in the highest regard in her village, we find, in the next period. So she, is it out of shame? Is it out of the, the, the disconnection that she had with the village? She didn't want to meet any of these people. She didn't want to pass any of these people. She was probably going there at the specific time where she knew that she would meet none of her village mates. See how it starts to come alive when we take the little clues and the details and bring them in. And here's Jesus breaking all these boundaries. A Jewish man absolutely should avoid Samaria. And here Jesus says he had to pass through. A Jewish man would never speak to a woman in public, let alone a Samaritan woman. And a Jewish man would be ritually unclean to take food or drink from an unclean person. And a Samaritan was unclean because they stand outside the law and a woman would be unclean because you don't do that in public with someone who is not your wife or family. Jesus is breaking all sorts of boundaries here. He's doing everything wrong, but that's what he does, right? Because he's going to make contact. He's going to make relationship. And that was always more important to him than these customs, these rituals, and even the laws. If they separated him from someone, he was going to break them down. And so we have this idea of living water that he's talking about. Maya Haye, living water. He calls himself a gift of God. Remember, God loved so that. God loved in such a manner that. He gave his child of unity, Jesus, as a way shower back to the Father, back to this living water. This living water, Maya Haye, is a... Hebrew idiom, it means something. It means running water, water that's in motion, water that's from a spring or a fountain or a stream. Now, any of you who have been good Boy Scouts or Girl Scouts, you know that's the only kind of water that you want to drink. If you're out in the woods, you're going to drink the running water. You're going to drink water that is moving, and the faster the better, because if it's still and stagnant, you're not going to drink that stuff. So the living water was water that was drinkable. Living water is water that nourished and brought life. Living water was water that was not polluted, always in motion, clean, clear, not stagnant and safe. She has a misconception, of course, when she, he tells her this, just like Nicodemus did. Remember when he told Nicodemus, you need to be born again if you're going to see the kingdom? And he said, well, how can I crawl back into my mother's womb when I'm old? Okay, now that sounds pretty ridiculous, but I suppose at a certain point that would seem logical, right? Now, her misunderstanding, I think, is a little bit more understandable he says he would give her living water, you know. And she, of course, is thinking just as literally as Nicodemus is. So you haven't got anything to draw with. You haven't got a pitcher. You haven't got, you know, how are you going to get this living water? And how are you going to be able to give it to me? But this living water is a metaphor that Jesus is trying to get across to her. That it's fresh and it's clean. Ancient wells were just a shaft dug into the ground, you know. But the water came up somewhat filtered through the ground so you could drink it. But he's talking about something very different here. Let's continue with the story, right at verse 13. She says, you're not greater than our father Jacob, are you, who gave us the well and drank of it himself and his sons and his cattle? And Jesus answered and said to her, everyone who drinks of this water will thirst again. But whoever drinks of the water that I will give him shall never thirst. But the water that I will give him will become in him a well of water springing up to eternal life. The woman said to Jesus, Sir, give me this water so I will not be thirsty nor come all the way here to draw. 
And he said to her, Go, call your husband and come here. The woman answered and said, I have no husband. And Jesus said to her, You have correctly said, I have no husband, for you have had five husbands, and the one with whom you now have is not your husband. This you have said truly. Ouch, huh? And the woman said to him, Sir, I perceive you that you are a prophet. Our fathers worshipped in this mountain, and you people say that Jerusalem is the place where men ought to worship. And Jesus said to her, Woman, believe me, an hour is coming when neither this mountain nor in Jerusalem will you worship the Father. You worship what you do not know. We worship what we know, for salvation is from the Jews. But an hour is coming, and now is, when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth. For such people the Father seeks to be his worshipers. God is spirit, and those who worship him must worship in spirit and truth. Okay, there's a lot going on here. And you've got to love the conversation, right? Nobody is answering each other's questions. They're just kind of crossing, right? It's just, it's just like real life, right? Conversations, they don't question, answer, question, answer. It's just like missing and, and circling in on the point. That's what I love about this passage. Okay, so he's talking about living water, water that's always in motion. And most importantly, this water that's always in motion is just like the spirit. Remember, rucha in Aramaic, spirit means breath, wind, and spirit all at the same time. And the, the, the idea, the concept that unites all three of those, wind, breath, and spirit, is motion. Wind isn't wind if it's not moving. If breath is not moving, you're dead. And if spirit is not moving, it's not spirit. It's the same idea here. That's what unites those concepts under that one banner. Living water is water that is moving. If it's not moving, it's not living water, right? It's not maya haye. It's something else. So just like breath and wind and spirit, this water moves. He's piling up the metaphors again. Think it. Living water, born of spirit, eternal life, the wind, always in motion, always alive. What is the main, the main signifier that we have something that's alive? It moves, right? You're looking for proof of life. You're looking for movement. It's the same here with spirit. It's the same thing with water. There must be movement. It's fresh. It's new. It's alive. Remember when uh, they go to look for Jesus in the graveyard after the crucifixion? Why do you seek the living among the dead? This is a place of stasis. This is a place where there is no movement. Why would you search for Jesus here? He's going to be moving someplace, always alive. So she says, well, give me this water. She wants to get some of this water. Now, when you think about it, it's the same question that Nicodemus and the rich young man were asking, right? What must I do to obtain eternal life? Well, what's eternal life? Life that is moving, life that's eternally alive. It's always in motion, always new, always changing, always surprising. It's the same question. How do I get this life? How do I get this living water? What must I do to obtain it? And the answer is the same for all three. You've got to let go of the last thing that you're clinging to that is disallowing you from being able to see kingdom, that is blocking kingdom. Now, for Nicodemus, this was the rule of law. For Nicodemus, this was ritual practice. He was all invested in the religiosity of the Jews, in the temple system. That was the thing that he was clinging to. That's what gave him his power as an individual. 
But Jesus tells him, you're going to have to move from the baptism of water, investment in your religion, in your community, to a baptism of spirit. You're going to have to transcend that if you really want to find this eternal life. And the rich young man, what was he clinging to? Well, he had real possessions. He had great wealth. He had lots of possessions. He had power himself, authority. And Jesus tells him, you need to sell all of that. Let it go. His first followers had to drop their nets. Same idea here. Now, what about the Samaritan woman? What is it that she is still clinging to? And isn't it interesting that when she says, give me this water, Jesus says, call your husband. Bring him here. Let's talk, (laughs) basically. And then, of course, she says, I haven't got a husband. And then he lets her know everything that he knows about her. She has five husbands, and her living boyfriend is not one that she's married to. What is it that she has been clinging to her probably entire adult life? Dysfunctional relationships, disconnection, discommunity. Why is she going to the well at noon? Because she can't be seen in public. Just like the woman who comes to Jesus when he's at Simon's house, but she actually presses through the crowd, but she was persona non grata. If he were a prophet, he would know who's touching her, Simon says, right? Same idea here. She's clinging to something just as Nicodemus and the rich young man are for their very survival, the way they see it. Through first half of life eyes, through literal and physical eyes, this is the way I survive. Through my riches, through my religion, through these relationships, something for something at least. Codependent as heck, yeah, but at least it helps me to survive, especially for a woman in that culture at that time all clinging to something for their advantage and their survival. But it's that very thing that they cling to that is blocking the kingdom from their sight, from their ability to experience, blocking the living water. And Jesus here, what he's doing is he's exposing the sin of all of them, but not as a breaking of the law, not as unlawfulness, but the sin as separation. Whatever it is that we do or whatever it is that we cling to that separates us from what actually is true reality, moments of connection, that is sinful because sin is separation. That's the definition of it. To miss the mark is to miss the mark of the perfect unity and oneness of God, to be separated in some way. So this loss of intimacy, this loss of connection that applies to all three of them, is what Jesus is pointing out to them when he reacts to their questions. And how does Jesus actually react to sin? What's his reaction to it? He doesn't seem to be very excited about it, does he? He's not indignant. He's not angry. It's not even urgent to him. He's just kind of matter of fact about it. He's patient. He's kind. Just like the woman caught in adultery. Remember her? dragged into the public square, everyone ready to throw the stones, asking him for judgment. Of course, they're trying to trap him. And when he has finally shamed them all into dropping their rocks and leaving, he turns to the woman. What does he say to her? He says, woman, where are those who condemned you? He said, they're all gone, Lord. Neither do I condemn you. But go and sin no more. Stop doing the things that are disconnecting you. Stop doing the things that are putting you in this kind of misery 
these kind of dysfunctional relationships. Stop doing the things that keep you from being able to see what kingdom is all about. But he's not condemning. You know, he's not worried about it. He's not anxious about it. He just recognizes what is and what needs to happen. But he is absolutely ruthlessly relentless about pointing out what is. He's not going to let you off the hook. You try to dodge, you're going to change the subject. She's going to change the subject here in a minute, big time. You know, he's not going to be dissuaded from that. Neither one is answering the other as they go through this. Give me the water, he says, call your husband. But he's addressing why he can't, quote unquote, give her the water. When he says, call your husband, he is entering into the pointing out of what is actually blocking her from ever being able to get the living water. Because as long as she is clinging to the dysfunction, as long as she's clinging to the actual limitation and the blockage, she can't have the living water. And it's not Jesus who gives it to her, really. It's already there. But she can't receive. And that's the key. Until she can stop living in dysfunction, until she can move beyond that, drop her nets, she will never be able to receive what is free, being freely given. So when he calls her out on the five husbands and all of that, does she answer that? charge at all you know, I see you're a prophet <laughs> here's the big change of subject here's the big dodge right she's moving back into safe territory right oh, that's getting a little bit too scary I'm going to move back here into safe territory and she brings up this age old war between the Jews and the Samaritans about which version of scripture they're supposed to be using which place that they're supposed to be uh, worshipping at whether it's uh, the, the Temple Mount or whether it's Gerasim uh, you know, all of this stuff because that's now a safe debate that she can enter into is that sounding a little bit familiar to you? Don't we do this all the time? Don't we end up fighting about all these details that mean nothing in the end result? Most of the stuff that we fight about as Christians, either within ourselves or with others who debate Christianity, are things that we can't know anyway. We can't know about the next life. We believe and are convinced there is one. We believe and convince it's going to be a good place for us because God is love, but we can't know anything about it. So what are we doing fighting over it? What are we doing fighting about end times? What are we doing fighting about so many things? Because that's safe territory. We can just stay in our minds. We don't have to become vulnerable. In fact, we're building up defenses when we enter into those kind of debates that feel safe to us. But Jesus is saying, as long as you're in the safe place, as long you're in, as you're in the place of your supposed certainty, you are the furthest from kingdom you could ever be. Because to enter kingdom requires a vulnerability of letting everything go and actually letting people see you as you are and seeing yourself as you are. Letting humility have its perfecting effect on you as well. So Jesus is not deflected here, of course. He zeroes right back into the central issue. He says, it's neither going to be Jerusalem nor Gerasim. You worship what you don't know. You worship, in other words, what you have not experienced, what you have no intimate connection with. Right? We worship what we know. We worship what we have already had intimate experience with. 
the fullness of this worship, the fullness of this kingdom, which he then calls salvation. But then that creates another problem for us because for us, salvation is being allowed to enter heaven and avoiding hell in the next life. But to a Jew, salvation is spiritual liberation right here and right now. In other words, salvation is exactly the same as drinking living water. It's exactly the same as being born of the Spirit. It's exactly the same as letting the wind blow you about. All these metaphors are the same and pointing toward the same place. The salvation that he's talking about is coming from the Jews because as a Jew himself who has now experienced this truth that makes free, makes us free, that's the salvation he's talking about. It's not going to come from holding on to a religious ritual or a religious principle. He says the true worshipers, and the ones that are worshiping in spirit and truth, and not just as an act of religious duty or devotion or a ritual, this is where it's all headed. God is spirit. God is like that wind that you can't see the cause of it, but you can only see the effect. So he's telling her the same thing that he told Nicodemus, that you need to move beyond the law, you need to move beyond the ritual, all the way to spirit and wind and the uncertainty of camping out in that place. Now in English, the word worship is a combination of two Middle English words. One of them is worth, and we know what that means, but the other is sipe, and sipe, which morphed into ship eventually, means a shape or a quality. And so worship originally was kind of the quality of worth or to give worth, to give the quality of worth. So we kind of see how it works as an English word to describe what we're trying to do with God here. When you go into the catechism, if you were raised Catholic and you had the Baltimore Catechism that was pounded into you as a child, what was worship? Well, the actual definition was to glorify God. And what does that mean? It means to acknowledge God's greatness with honor, praise, and worship. In other words, with rituals of the, of the church, right? So what I even remember as a kid, God needs me to praise him. Doesn't he already know how good he is? I mean, does he really need me to be always reminding him, always acknowledging him, always praising and singing and, and giving this kind of, of acknowledgement? I mean, God really have that kind of lowest self-esteem that he needs that for me? I mean, what's going on here? Kind of remember me. Remember in Men in Black when there's that, that whole society inside the locker door and he opens it up? And then they think that K, the aging K is their God, you know. Okay, can you see? And it's just like, that's what I feel like when we talk about this kind of catechetical idea of worship, that we always got to just be bolstering God's ego somehow. Is that really what it is all about? Does God really need that? When you go to Hebrew, the word for worship is shakah. And in a similar word in Aramaic is, uh, is saged. That means to bow down. It means to prostrate yourself, to lie down. And by extension, it means to submit. It means to surrender. And now we're getting back to the same place where he talked about ch children. You know, th this children, this child is the emblem of the kingdom, the talia, which was the trust without understanding. 
just the trust of a child, that blind kind of trust, but also at the same time the submission of the servant or the bond slave. Those two things together, that connects with the Hebrew idea of worship as submission, as surrender, without trying to control or to understand, but just allowing yourself to be in that humble position, in that dependent position. And then when you add in the idea of spirit, we're going to worship, we're going to bow down, we're going to trust, we're going to submit in spirit, ruha, breath and wind, right? At the same time. And then in truth, shirara in Hebrew, in Aramaic, which means right or a harmonious direction. And even more importantly, it means that which liberates, that which opens new possibilities. And so the truth that makes you free is really a redundant expression because truth means that which liberates and that which opens new possibilities. And so truth is that new possibility. Truth is that right in a harmonious direction and that which makes you free. So you've got the idea of breath and wind always in motion and the submission and surrender to that which makes us free. The idea here is that we all breathe the same wind. We all breathe the same spirit. We're like a float in an ocean of wind and spirit. This atmosphere that we're in, we're all breathing the same thing. It connects us. To immerse and to breathe is to be one with everything else that is. This is the idea of worshiping in spirit and truth. To have an awareness that we are all breathing the same wind and spirit. And if we become aware, that truth that we know, that experience that we have, actually liberates us. Do you remember when Jesus said that there's only one unforgivable sin? Do you remember that from Matthew 12? Only one forgivable sin, he said. And he called it blasphemy of the Spirit. Now, this has gone around the flagpole about a million times. What does that actually mean, blasphemy? The word in, in Aramaic is gudapa, which literally means an incision. It means to cut off. And so if you are going to have blasphemy of the Spirit, if you're going to have an incision that cuts you off from the breath and from the Spirit, yeah, that would be unforgivable. Not because God is withholding forgiveness, but because you have cut yourself off just like a branch from a tree. You are not, no longer connected to the source. You're no, no longer connected to the motion of life. That's a definition of death, isn't it? Interesting. Aloha in Polynesian in Hawaiian, you know, it literally means breath, breath of life, breath of God. You know what a haole is? Haole literally means without breath. That's why they apply it to those white Westerners who came in that had no connection with the land, no connection with the people, and operated at, in, with such principles that it just devastated their land and devastated their way of life because they were without breath. They were disconnected from the source. They were committing blasphemy of the Spirit, in other words. Not because God didn't forgive them, but because they were cut off from forgiveness itself, cut off from love itself. C.S. Lewis has a great little bit here, and it's in your handouts. He writes, It is in the process of being worshipped 
that God communicates his presence to men. Even in Judaism, the essence of the sacrifice was not really that men gave bulls and goats to God, but that by their doing so, God gave himself to men. See the difference here? Worship is the process of full communication with God. No loss in translation. Wordless, just full presence, spirit-to-spirit connection. It has nothing to do with religious ritual or duty or obligation. But that ritual can help usher in the spirit of worship and truth. It can be a catalyst. That's what religion, when done well, is all about. Pointing us, directing us, funneling us into the experience of worshiping and in spirit and in truth. The surrender, the submission, the trust, the immersion in breath and in freedom. To breathe in the unity of God, the connection, free from all the limitation, the dysfunction, the broken relationships that we cling to, even though they make us miserable, but at least they feel like it's something that we can cling to, something we can hold on to. But to break that hold, to let go, to drop your nets, to sell everything, right? And to drink from the living water, to become born again, to be able to see and taste the kingdom that Jesus is talking about, to allow ourselves to just blow about in the breeze, not trying to control the flow, but seeing where it takes us. That is the obtaining of eternal life. That is the drinking of the living water. Water that is always moving and life that is always eternally now and new at the same time. This is what Jesus is trying to get across to her and to everyone and to all of us. Can we start to see it that way? Can we allow ourselves to be blown about by the breath and let go of our need to control? That's the question Jesus is asking over and over again and will become the central question of our lives as we try to move along the way that Jesus is pointing. Let's pray. Father, you are our very breath. You're the breath in our lungs. You're our heartbeat. You're everything. We like to imagine that we are independent. We like to imagine that we build things that matter. We like to imagine that we have the authority and control over our lives. Help us to see ourselves as we really are, as children dependent on all of the elders around us, as servants or slaves dependent on the household that we serve. And help us to see that that is not a humiliation. Help us to see that that is a liberation just like a child doesn't feel limited by his parents or her parents, by the pancakes that are put down every morning for breakfast, don't need to know where they're coming from, just that they'll always be there. Can we start to live life more like that? Father, that's what we want to do. To have a fearless vulnerability about us, a happy dependence about us, that we can rely on you even as we work hard, even as we still have our plans, but we know ultimately 
We don't have the control. We are being blown about by your wind. And that that's a good place to be. Help us to find that more and more, Lord, as we go. Help us to see it in others and in you, in our studies, in the scripture, anywhere that helps to drive the point home deeper and deeper that that's who we really are in you. And thank you for caring for us the way that you do and your love and your constancy, Father. Never let us forget we can only love because you loved us first. In Jesus' name, amen. Let's all stand.